as a mobile phone going off in my pocket. It it's happens. It's, yeah, in, in television, I mean, everyone panics when a phone goes off, but it's not the end of the world. <laughs> um, okay. Should we have a competition for the uh, for the identity of that caller? It's <laughs> <laughs> a funny looking bloke. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Ruck, the new rugby podcast from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Owen Slott, Chief Rugby Correspondent of The Times, and I am podcast governor for the weekend. Apparently the podcast is flying higher than the Sutton United Reserve goalkeeper. And so, appropriately, we have another cast of rugby heavyweights on the show this week. I'm joined today by Stuart Barnes, who writes for both The Times and The Sunday Times, who insists that England must smash Italy by more than 68 points this weekend, or otherwise we should all pack up and go home. Cruel, cruel. Uh, we hope Barnes will fit into the pod team today, despite his lack of broadcasting experience. <laughs> morning, Barnesy. Good morning. Good to have you on. Uh, we are joined also by Damien Hopley. Damien is a former England and Wasp player who retired in 1998, aged 27, forced out by a knee injury. Uh, we were still talking earlier about his outside break. Are you impressed that people still remember that, Hoppers? I very much so. That's, uh, I'll be paying out good money to each of the panellists for bringing that up. Thank you, chaps. Okay, that's the last nice thing we're going to say about him today, I think. Um, on the quitting uh, uh, as a player, uh, on being forced to quit by a player, Damien surveyed the scene and asked a serious question. Who is it who catches players like me who lose their living early, players who find who have to find a second profession at such an early age? When he saw nothing, he started what became the Rugby Players Association, which nearly 20 years later plays a massive role in the game and in players' lives. So, Damien, welcome to the show. Uh, and finally, uh, a man who needs no introduction... But we'll give him one anyway. Steve Jones, rugby correspondent for the Sunday Times. Steve, you were once rugby writer of the year. What are the chances of you returning next week with the same accolade adorning your byline? Well, I've seen the shortlist and the expression shoo-in uh, <laughs> comes to mind. Oh, sorry, you're on it as well, aren't you? <laughs> well, Sati, I tell you what, it'll be well-deserved if you win it, but I'll never enter again. <laughs> uh, good luck, mate, good luck. Um... Now, those who have become regular, regular listeners to this podcast will recognise that we love to discuss the game, we like to have fun with it, we love the Six Nations. But before we start on that, though, we have to recognise a story of far more importance this week than tries and heroics and the Six Nations and Grand Slams and all the rest of that. And we want to start on that this week. Tragic news emerged at the weekend of the death of the former Wallaby lock forward Dan Vickerman. Vickerman was only 37 years old. He had amassed 63 caps and a world of respect. He retired after the 2011 World Cup, and it is then that he clearly started to struggle with the rugby afterlife. What do you do next? How do you replace everything that being a professional sportsman brought to me? Vickerman did not get far enough in finding those answers, it would seem. His mental health suffered. Damien, this is a, a shocking and terrible story. The thoughts and feelings that assailed uh, Dan Vickerman's mind are not uncommon, are they? No, and I think, uh, I mean, first of all, the condolences go out to Sarah's widow and the two young children in the family and, and all those who knew Dan, um, the accolades that have been pouring in from around the world, the people he played with, is a testament to what an outstanding uh, individual he was. And it's just a huge shock and, and a great tragedy that he's no longer with us. Um, but I think what this has done, and, and it was a tragic coincidence that Dan's um, passing was 
coincidentally, the same time as we launched our uh, Rugby Players Association Lift the Weight campaign, that's all about mental health and mental illness and, and trying to reach out and ensure that players, first and foremost, under our watch as RPA members, have support around them. Um, but I just it really was, it, it just highlights the the how difficult that transition can be and uh, you know Dan was an extraordinarily bright capable person had done a lot of work in this area with his own players association back in Australia so uh, it's it's an illness and a, and a disease that uh, can affect everyone and I think that the shock that has gone through the rugby world speaks volumes for who Dan and what Dan was all about. Steve, you um, uh, did a very big piece in the Sunday Times this weekend on uh, on, on the RPA campaign and, and uh, the struggles that players face with, with uh, mental health. Can you uh, tell us a bit about the the players that you spoke to and, and the the stories that, that they were sharing with you? Well, f- well, first of all, um, it was the most amazing week week's work I've ever ever had, um, and uh, I should thank Damien publicly because um, it was he and uh, and his team and uh, Tom McDowell at the RPA who who helped not helped me but put me onto it uh, more than helped me and also at the end of the week I was almost ashamed of uh, what I hadn't known before in all in all aspects um, the, the players uh, that I spoke to eight of them were, were just uh, wonderful um, courageous uh, wouldn't keep anything back whatsoever um, it taught me that uh, just because someone is a fantastic bloke and outgoing and charming and always buzzing from the outside means nothing in terms of, um, you know, you take someone like Ollie Phillips, who is always buzzing and was on the World 7 scene, etc., etc. Um, Ollie went through real blackness and, he- and hell, um, despite his outer demeanor that taught me that. Also taught me what um, that rugby's uh, umbrella of care and love and affection is still there um, from the, from the campaign from lift the weight, and that it, I think horrendously on Sunday, it suddenly almost became more urgent than it was before because of Dan Vickerman. Mm. And the, these players, I mean. They're, they're... No, no one is more important than another but there were Johnny Wilkinson was one of them James Haskell was another one of them it, 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 as you were saying success ain't got much to do with it has it? No it hasn't and, and the thing is Owen that uh, the, the people we spoke to and the people that RPA helped me with were everyone had a different story I mean you've got James Haskell who you know typical of Hask with his massive preparation culture he'd even prepared in the future to, to feel depressed if, if he should do because he's been seeing someone since the age of 19 take Danielle Waterman you know when you see Danielle she's as bubbly as, as Ollie Phillips and a great player but she was going through hell from injury and other, others was just tangent, tangential you know um, Duncan Bell the great man went through a marriage breakup but was always feeling gloomy and actually it was the rugby that kept him going etc kept him sane so uh, John Okito was just a magnificent um, bloke from Leicester uh, and Christchurch who had an awful misunderstanding with his dad in which they were in separate rooms not talking and be- but each wanted to talk to the other and it gave John a again six or seven years of hell so it is so complex it's so deep it's so difficult but I mean I think that any one person who now reaches out to lift the weight is it is a bonus and you know let's just hope everybody comes out mm. Stuart you, you were uh, played before there was an RPA there or, or even a thought of it I'd, I'd, I suppose when, when you look back 
would, would this sort of thing have been talked about at all? Would you have been aware of players having uh, issues like this or, or, or is that just another era? No, it's not another era. I mean, uh, players are no different in the sense that um, it's it, it's it's an emotional intensity. Sport is and always has been and always will be. It's a branch of entertainment. And when you're involved in the entertainment business, there has to be a degree of the extrovert in you. And you run out and you, you, you represent your club or you represent your country and there's 10,000 there or there's 70,000 there. You're in the spotlight and... You know, there are times when things can go well, things can go badly, but you'll come off at the other end and just think, I have to be out of there now. And and there's a mask, I think, when you're a sportsman. Uh, it, it's a mask that you put in front of uh, the media, uh, the public, um, and it makes it harder when you have to put this mask all the time. And I think, you know, it's, you know, we look back to cricket, which has long had a problem. Mm. Uh, and the, the other aspect is it's a team game as well. It's an entertainment it's a yeah. team game. And yeah. when it's a team game, you really don't want to show anything in front of your fellow players. Now, the one difference between when I played and now is they're not just fellow players, they're fellow pros. And so uh, people are prepared to look further, to engage and be a little bit more open-minded. I think uh, Damien will probably agree in the... 70s, 80s, 90s, um, you know, rugby was quite a macho culture. So if you did have problems, you kept them quiet. But this, the the uh, interest for me, particularly with rugby, is, is <clears throat> as you say, it's a macho culture. So rugby players are, are almost obliged not to admit when they're hurt. I mean, that's part of what you, the deal is when you're on the pitch. You, you've taken a blow, but you get up because you don't want to admit that you're hurt physically and mentally, I think, is, uh, I guess, would be the same, Damien. Yeah, d- definitely. And I think, you know, we talk about the hidden illness and, and I think what we've got now is professional environments where, you know, players don't necessarily have to get on with each other. They have to work well and play well together. And certainly watching, hearing some of the sort of philosophies that came out from New Zealand over the last two World Cup wins is that teams weren't necessarily the best of friends, but they got on well together. For me, this is just an extension of the well-being and support we give to our players. You know, one of our uh, edicts as a players' association is, you know, we want England to be the best place to play rugby in the world. And off-field support and care through lift the weight campaign through our charity restart rugby through all the personal development programs we run in conjunction with the rfu and premiership rugby means that we want england to be a fantastic playing uh, environment and and this is part of it and i mean as jonesy pointed out uh, you know what you don't know you don't know but from our perspective we need to do more in this space we need mm. to look after our players better and do you, certainly do you recall your own process of, of the transition as it's known from player to the, the outside world I think I'm still on it actually to be honest Lottie um, it was interesting I, you know I, I talked a lot about when I uh, had to retire and I had eight operations on my knee and two new reconstructions and effectively got sort of legged over by the RFU at the time having despite captain the England seven team in Hong Kong had to pay my own medical bills had to fight to get compensation and that really was the the catalyst for setting up the players association but but for me when I was listening to Jono um, Kisser the other night listening to Ollie Phillips at, at the launch we had um the the um, resonance was extraordinary because it absolutely was what I went through as a 26, 27 year old 
because you feel like it sounds quite melodramatic but you feel like there's a bereavement and you feel like a part of you has died because you're no longer the person you said you were you want you're not defined as Stuart said running out in front of 10,000 or 70,000 people so you're groping around for this you know self-identity you've lost all this self-esteem and sense of direction and I think being involved in an environment where it's quite institutional these were the early very early days of professional rugby so nowhere near where as sophisticated as clubs are now but when you're having everything done for you you for me it was absolutely the sense of you 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 don't belong anymore and you're sitting on a physio's bench and everyone's running around and coming in and giving you stick because you're still not out there 12 14 months on so I think that was the hardest thing is that suddenly just a part of you almost does die because you're no longer the person you were. And, and that physically was never going to be a problem, but psychologically was undoubtedly the hardest thing that we went through. Mm. So, mm. so you, one of the things that uh, listening to these two, uh, two former greats here is that um, – the, what what we've got to get rid of is this thing that, that old school is always good. Uh, I, I think you know, um, like Duncan Bell f- saw himself as old school, and it, old school. If you're talking about great old characters, is one thing, but when you're talking about the culture of, sil- of silence, it's very, very, very uh, dangerous, and mm. and the stigma, etc. Um, you know, let, let's let's remember that um, there's only one part of the of the campaign that's restricted to Damien's members. That that's the 24/7 help. Line. The, the rest of it, as Damien has said, and and his colleagues, is to really get it out there for 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 you know for all players and and their families. I mean, I spoke to Kane Palmer Newport, who's got three horrendously uh, uh, um, challenged um, close relatives with. Um, Schizophrenia. schizophrenia and um, the stories were hair raising from Kane who spoke brilliantly and you know old school is gone now and mm. it's and, and, it, and it, again it's for everybody it's mm. for parents it's for ki- children it's for retired players and it's for current players of all, of all shapes and sizes Steve one of the uh, the um, uh, weights that, that uh, people suffering from mental health bear is is the idea that they're on their own and that they can't talk talk about it and, and sharing is the, is the first step as, uh, as we know in your interview with Duncan Bell you you told a story that showed how successful sharing can be and also how that the fact that the, the rugby community however you regard it as macho or not macho is very open to understanding uh, what what people go through would you, would you just just tell that story about when Duncan Bell told his uh, told his bath teammates uh, that he'd been uh, what he'd been going through oh, yeah yeah I mean um Duncan was was all the Bath players were gathered and Kane Palmer was there and told me about it. they were all gathered in a room at Farley House and uh, Duncan was sort of um, in the corridor and, and he walked towards the door and stopped and then keep on going back again because he wasn't sure he was doing the right thing and he was in in, in many ways the archetype of old school and let's keep it quiet and you know and he he was worried the players would think that he'd let them down by speaking but but the experience. Of all of them I spoke to is, as soon as they started speaking, things got better immediately. I mean, there was a long road to travel. Anyway, so Duncan gave his speech and said, look, I've been suffering from depression for years and hope you don't feel let down. Everybody got up and said... Um, uh, and gave him what, what Duncan says is a man hug. There was a lot of emotion in the room. They then go out to uh, to warm up for their training. And as Duncan, as Belly said, he said, we, as usual, we started off with uh, with um, 
uh, touch rugby. And uh, within about two minutes, Ollie Barkley shouted, lads, for God's sake, let Belly score. Otherwise, you might go away and start crying. And Belly said it was the greatest, it was the best thing anyone could have said because the bond was there. He was out. It, the, the hair was running and it never it, you couldn't get it back in. But the bond of rugby uh, uh, was there. It was still there. Mm. Good. Okay. Thank you, gents. Uh, just just finish that section by uh, saying the um, the Rugby Players Association campaign is called Lift the Weight. And if you uh, wanted to get in touch, the uh, web address is www.therpa.co.uk forward slash lift the weight. Rugby goes on, and we're going to slip back uh, into the game on the pitch now. The fallow week in the Six Nations, it sometimes seemed like a quiet one when there's not a lot going on, but the Aviva Premiership at the weekend uh, absolutely roared, I found. Uh, I, I actually missed the first day of it because I was on an Alp, but I got back on Sunday and caught up as far as I could go. I, I thought it seemed amazing. There was... Uh, 374 points scored over the six games. That's an average of 62 points a game. Um, uh, Barnsley, did you catch a lot of it? Yeah, that worries me. Too many points. Points don't necessarily tries don't necessarily mean good rugby. But certainly on the Sunday there was a lot of good rugby, and it was great to see uh, the North of England going so well. Um, Sales performance against Wasp was absolutely outstanding. Some fine performances. Uh, and the other thing I would note is, and, and, and I think I wrote a column about three, four months ago, nobody's mentioning Dean Richards and what a great job he has slowly been doing at Newcastle. He's rebuilt that club. He's taken a team that played absolutely no rugby and he's turned them into a really entertaining team. And when you look at the man-for-man uh, personnel-wise on the field, you're thinking... You know, this isn't a team that looks on paper as it should be challenging for Champions Cup next year, but it is now. Um, and those two performances were really heartening. Um, a couple of years ago, you started to wonder if there was a sort of a, a split in the Premiership. You know, the big clubs, the money clubs, just getting away from the others. Yeah, there was a six and a six or a five and a seven, wasn't there? There, there certainly was. And Newcastle in particular um, this season are showing that that doesn't have to be the case. Uh, and that was hugely heartening. I just thought it was a tremendous weekend. Um, I just love the Newcastle club. They got none of the advantages of some of the other clubs where there's a guaranteed 20,000 there, come through the gate, etc. They've had to fight for everything, and uh, as well as Dean Richards uh, and and the team and, and the players who have been fantastic. Uh, there's like Mick Hogan, chief exec, and the owner. Um, uh, it's just a buzz there. And Sale was tremendous as well. There's a great uh, stat from Steve Diamond after the game where he said, uh, just like you know, there were 13 former uh, uh, members of the Sale Academy out there today, eight with Wasps, and uh, sorry, five with Wasps and eight with uh, with Sale, which is a great recommendation as well as a barb comment. So I just think it's been the best premiership season. I think there's a huge buzz. I'd like the best players to be around more often, but that can't be done unless internationals are cropped. And it was just joy on the weekend to see different faces playing with such enthusiasm I, I think it was I had, a, I had a fantastic weekend actually I got on the road I went to Leicester on Saturday and then shared a train to Sheffield with two hen parties uh, uh, several <laughs> drunken well, football fans and, and then the started and, you... and uh, then I took my Leicester kit off and um, <laughs> and then went over to Sale on Sunday so um, had a really great weekend and actually it's interesting 
looking at the opportunities that the Six Nations gives to some of the younger players who came through. And uh, I, I just thought some of the rugby weekend was outstanding. I mean, particularly, you know, even as a former Wasp, to, to see Sale go as well as they did was was brilliant. And um, I, I, I just sort of feel that, you know, there's always that big concern of the clash between international and club rugby and does it detract? In, in many ways, I think it was a great advert for the Premiership of the weekend that there's so much talent that maybe doesn't get the game time it deserves but they were in full force at the weekend. Can I say that this is where uh, the extra money does come into it? Because obviously I spend a a lot of time uh, on Sky duties with Pro 12 Rugby and the Premiership and international periods has a real advantage. The strength in depth comes through. I saw a pretty decent game, Ospreys Munster, but they don't have the the quality uh, just bubbling up as we're seeing out of Premiership Rugby and, and, and the number of English players and academy players coming through, and that's very heartening for England. And it's why England, this weekend is why England should always be one of the best two or three teams in the world because of the depth of talent. These are the weekends when you see it. You mentioned depth of talent and how how high Newcastle are flying. I agree with that completely. The talent coming through in Newcastle from the northeast is not is is not hot enough. There's not enough coming through. There was a stat that some um, Dean Ryan was uh, in the paper this morning, who's now in charge of development of under twenties and, and and the player pathways. It called of the last hundred odd players that have been capped for England, only two have come from the northeast. Uh, it's I, not enough. Well, I think one of the reasons examples are key. Right, when England won the World Cup, every young kid in England wanted to be a fly half. They didn't know about sidestepping or anything, but they could all drop goals and, and kick penalties because Wilkinson was the example above all our examples. Everyone wanted to be Johnny Wilkinson. Now, Newcastle have struggled just to hang on in the Premiership. Steve's made the point they don't get big crowds because it hasn't been easy to, to get people there. So the examples haven't been there. You know, No 11-year-old kid wants to say, I, I want to grow up and be someone fighting against relegation every year. What I think will happen, if Newcastle can make the breakthrough and and, and relive the great days when, when they were early champions and be there or thereabouts for a number of years, I think then you've got a chance of people coming through. And that, you know, grassroots, you know, it doesn't just happen. There has, and especially in an age of television, so much sporting competition, you've got to look at someone local and say, I can be like that. And I think Newcastle being successful will break that stat. And it is a worrying stat and it's a problem. But the North East, you know, it isn't a hotbed of rugby union. It's always had uh, rugby uh, excellence. Gosforth were a powerful team in the 70s. But no one would say that Newcastle, you know, has has been the generator of English rugby. It needs a successful team. And I think they're getting one. But it's interesting with Newcastle. I mean, they're bidding for the European Cup finals next next year. Uh, you know, they're absolutely laying their stall out as a as a centre of mm. excellence to, to play rugby union. And, you know, it's interesting. We as, a, as, a, as an organisation will go out and visit clubs throughout the season Um and you know you can definitely sense a, ch- a change in in the wind up in Newcastle in terms of you know the people they've got there. Nicky Gonover going this year, you know you really feel people like Dave Walder going on into the media saying, well, you know seventh isn't good enough. We want to be in the top four. There's a real ambition and steely ambition about them now that we probably haven't seen for a while. I would love England to take another international back up to St James's Park or even to Old Trafford as they did in the in the World Cup. I think it's a real shame they're not doing that. T- totally agree. And what a, in my, where I'm sitting. 
what a no-brainer to, to, to take the uh, the final to Newcastle, the European final. I mean, why why on earth we're at Murrayfield this year? If if, if Scotland had been do, uh, um, dominating the closing stages of the tournament for the last four years, fine. But why are we at Murrayfield? Mm. Why why doesn't it go somewhere else? And that that Newcastle thing is a no-brainer. It would be magnificent to have it there. Uh, highlights of the weekend. So. Uh, I got back caught up with Wasp Sale. Um, I just loved a bit of commentary that was Kirtley Beale to Willie LaRue back to Kirtley Beale to score. You just think that was an exotica of the of the modern premiership that two years ago, three years ago, you wouldn't have thought possible. Well, I, I mean, I was there and, and uh, you know, Sale were very, very good for that win. Um, you know, Denny Solomono was outstanding and is just scoring tries for fun at the moment. But I thought Will Addison was exceptional in the mm. midfield. Mm. And, uh, you know, again, I think even back in my day, Sale was always a fantastic fixture. You had two very attacking philosophies. I think it's similar this year. Um, and it was, you know, the crowd, the environment, the atmosphere was fantastic up at the AJ Bell. So uh, they were uh, very, very impressive and a lot of young talent coming through that sales side. And you'd hope that would be a sort of turning point for them in the season, which has stuttered so far. Yeah, it's stuttered because they've got a lot of young players and young players find it hard to turn performance into results. The people who make results happen are the sort of gnarly old pros. And you just got to get that balance right. And Steve Diamond, the point that Steve was making about the number of academy players have come through, it's a great strength. But before it becomes a strength, it's also a potential weakness. And I think that's what Sale are seeing. We've seen some fantastic rugby from them, but we've seen some very naive rugby. And I think this is a, a seminal moment for them because what's have been going so well, the amount of confidence that will come out of this performance, I think will send them off into the last third of the season in, in really good shape. I, I just loved clearly that the one thing was above anything that was the Harry Kane hat trick against um, <laughs> against Fulham. I just can, thought, can we can we avoid? I thought football? the boy was on football. Oh, that's not football, mate. That's life. Producer, we'll be cutting this section out. Yeah. No, we won't. I'll resign if he does. Oh no, I better, I better not say that because uh, you might. Um, I just thought uh, fantastic. Also, another great performer. I absolutely love this Khan Fotoeli on uh, Saturday. Just magnificent at scrum half for Bath and the difference the difference between the teams and on Sunday I had a great uh, afternoon I went to see Colts rugby between Reading and Reading Abbey in uh, at a time when Colts rugby is difficult struggling a little bit for numbers I saw a great full-blooded game which I really enjoyed Denny uh, Solomona that you mentioned Hoppers uh, he scored a hatchet of the weekend he's only been playing rugby union for about a week and a half is he is he going to be the next rugby league convert, Kiwi convert, who's uh, going to play for England and then the Lions, or do we feel do we feel that England is strong enough that if you imported a player like that, it might start to weaken the bonds that are already there? I just very quickly say I was really depressed when I picked up a number of papers Monday when the first thing about that game wasn't the quality of the sale performance. And I understand the hat trick and the, the guys arrive from Castleford and he's still in contractual disputes. It's a good story. But immediately it, people were saying, what are his prospects of being qualified for England and when could he be qualified for England? He's a 24-year-old uh, Kiwi of Samoan extraction. I would like to think people are saying, when is he available for Samoa? I don't think England should be looking at him and I think it's a terrible indictment of the game that our first impulse is to say, when can we have him? And in, in, England can't turn around and moan about what's happening in the world game when all the English fans are saying, can we get our hands on him? He's not English shouldn't play for England. 
Well, I, I actually agree with you. I, th- I think uh, I think if he, uh, I think if he was brought into the England setup, I think it would be detrimental to what's there already. Uh, but on the other hand. Eddie Jones is a pragmatist. But it's massively premature as well. I mean, it, the world does not work. You score nine tries in seven games. That does not make you an England national or a Lion. It makes you a player of great potential. But Damien's played this game, like myself, for a long time. You know, it, it, that's just not how it is. Um, who, who, who can recall how long Jason Robinson had been playing for? He was on that playing to the uh, 2001 Lions. Was it was that his? It was that about was his, the same that, time, wasn't it? That was his. Uh, I think it was his opening season. <clears throat> I could be wrong. Somebody said, I know, I know that somebody said, I'll eat my hat if Jason Robinson plays for England. Uh, and I believe it might have been me, but I did actually say in his opening season. But Clive Woodward looked at Robinson and he saw something. And in fact, when he played, he made his debut against Italy. The rest of the England team avoided him. They didn't pass to him. Robinson didn't know what he was doing. It was a premature call from Woodward, but it was a brilliant call from Woodward because he looked to the potential. But Jason Robinson has been doing that at, a, at an incredible legend. He was a freak at rugby league. He's also a, English. Absolutely freak. And he's English. Yeah. So I'm just interested what, what Damien thinks because obviously you've got, um, you've got members involved in this, Hubbers. Yeah, well, you know, it puts us in a really difficult position. Yeah, thank God we don't have to pick the England team. But um, I think, you know, it's a bit like the Nathan Hughes scenario. If Nathan qualified play for England through residency, and if the rules are there and they apply to a player, then, you know, th- those are the rules. And we've seen New Zealand warehouse players and actually, I would say, destroy a number of careers over the years by picking a player at the New Zealand A level or into the sevens and therefore capturing their eligibility. Mm. And I think that's the biggest challenge we've got with it. The enormous um, quality of Pacific Island players that, that actually their international careers get blighted because they'll play for the second tier nation or they'll get picked for New Zealand for one game and then they're ca- captured and caught by that and can't then play for their country. And I think, yeah, there is a real issue around world rugby um, and qualification periods, but also going back the other way, should there be a stand down period for players to say, actually, I've played for Australia and two years later I actually want to return and play for Samoa? I think we'd see a f- I mean, what was an extraordinary World Cup in terms of the quality of the the uh, rather ridiculously called second tier nations and what they brought to the competition. But if you saw some players going back the other day, you might see some really huge results going on in World Cups, which would be fantastic for the game. I agree with that. I, I agree with the, the, this a sort of amnesty for it. But until then, I it does. You know, when you look at Burgess, uh, Leslie Viner Cole, you think, well, sorry, I'm quite quite sure what they were doing out there in, in an England shirt. And even though Burgess is uh, was English, but um, it's a very, very touchy thing. I agree with with Hopper. There's a great chance here to seal off some players for the, the the emerging nations or the great nations of the Pacific for just for a start. And let, let's take it. I, I'm I'm slightly um, wary about Solomon too, Stuart. Another <coughs> headline that we had a lot over the over the weekend was um, Owen Farrell, Lions captain? Question mark. Is he is. Can that really can that really be feasible? Would he not just be a target if he went out and was the leader of the Lions? I got to say, I mean, last April I was writing him up as a serial swinging arm, and I just thought he hasn't got the temperament for it. But he's found out how to communicate. He's found out how to keep control of himself. He's got composure. Uh, Farrell is a completely different animal in the last twelve months. Um, I would say the outstanding captain for England during the Six Nations is undoubtedly Owen Farrell. Um, when 
When Dylan Hartley has gone off, England have been struggling. Farrell has taken up the reins and in crisis moments has been outstanding. The decision to kick in Cardiff with nine minutes left, there was no thought. There, you know, there was no... The burden Chris Robshaw didn't seem capable of carrying. Farrell doesn't have that because Farrell backs himself and he believes in himself. And they said um, in the paper Sunday, Owen, he's got the mentality of a lock forward. He's got the sort of Martin Johnson, follow me, I'll give him what for. But he's also got the subtlety and the skills of a midfield back. And I think it's a very coherent combination. Uh, and I've always been a man thinking Maro Atoje will be the next England captain, but one has to reassess in the light of what Farrell is doing. As for the Lions, if he'd been captain of England for two years, I would say he would be probably the leading contender because Agreed, I think he's a cert. it's too early now, sure. No, that's what I was going to say. I, I don't think he has the wealth of experience. And having been on a Lions tour, it's not just about who's the best player. It's how do you understand the, 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 the combination and the mix of the four nations? Um, when it goes wrong, and it can easily go wrong in New Zealand, you need someone who's got the experience and the respect of everyone. And I still think Alan Wynne-Jones, for me, is that man. And I think it's nothing to do with Owen Farrell's captaincy skills that he's not a contender in my book it's just a lack of experience I, I, I agree with everything Stuart said I, I, I think he's disappointing he, it's, no I know it never happened before he's some man Farrell he's some uh, vastly influential guy in New Zealand you get subject to a brutal spotlight everyone will bring up all of Owen's past temper tantrums you know we remember I remember there's a Lions tour in 68 I think when the Springboks removed both Lions Richard Sharp and um, Barry John I think from from the fray because they were so targeted it's ruthless I would stick with a a nice big uh, naughty grizzled forward for now but I do think Owen Farrell's got a great chance of captain in England in the future and to see Owen Farrell down there in that test series yeah I, I was at the first game in Brisbane and he was astonishing and for me he has just come on I mean I've always felt he was a world class player but I think his, his followship his ability on the field you know the pass to Elliot Daly in Cardiff mm. under pressure I mean yeah. this guy is world class beyond doubt but you know captaincy or not I think he, he has a huge part to play in the in the Lions this, this summer and uh, you know he just keeps getting better and better and, and even as an individual he has this aura about him and people talk a lot about Marrow and what he brings but Owen brings this this absolute almost uh, sort of gun shooter presence he, he's just he's just on it all the time you know and he's he's a phenomenal professional player Saturday uh, starts the uh, third round of the Six Nations. Two absolutely cracking games, the two best games of the weekend. Uh, Starts with Scotland-Wales and then uh, uh, Ireland against France. Scotland have lost Greg Laidlaw and Josh Strauss and they'd already lost WP Nell. For me, that probably is too much from a team without enough strength and depth. I think Murrayfield is probably worth eight points. I think the loss of the people you've mentioned might be worth slightly more. It's a very hard one to call. I felt Scotland in Paris actually dipped down in their performance levels from the game against Ireland. I think that game was overrated. I thought it was a poor match in the last second half in particular. I felt that Wales were the 
biggest improvers, even though they lost against England. Um, so I think Wales are favourites, but this is a Scotland team that with Hogg can create points from nowhere. And the, the, perhaps the most fascinating thing about Scotland, they've lost uh, their inspiration, their tactician, their goal kicker. But you know what? In some ways, Greg Laidlaw has been the bloke who's held Scotland back because he's very much a forward scrum half. Uh, he puts a lot of pressure on Finn Russell because he doesn't really snipe. So the decision to go Price or Pergos will be interesting. Can they generate more momentum? But uh, when you look at all the ifs and buts, it's, it's Wales, but it's narrow. and I, I wouldn't have a bet even three weeks before Cheltenham. I, I, I think that um, it is very, very tight. I mean, Scotland were wrecked in the scrum against um, France and there's this big myth around that Wales have got the same scrummage as France where well, they haven't. I think the Welsh front row is incredibly disappointing. Whenever you see Richard Hibbard play for Gloucester, you think, why on earth is he not in the Welsh team? Because he's all over the field. The Welsh props just don't do enough around the field. I think Scotland got a great chance. I've been saying for years it'd be great when the old Murrayfield roar gets back mm. there and, and and what better time? I think if Wales keep on improving at the rate they did against England, they will be narrow favourites. I just think it's tight, and I think Scotland will have a foothold up front and have got a magnificent chance. And I agree that Ali Price gives uh, Scotland something that possibly Greg did not um, in terms of the, the, the ball in play. Ireland, France, uh, later on in the day, uh, I, I agree with you, Barnsley. I thought Ireland, uh, I thought France, the France game in Paris was disappointing and it was overhyped and they didn't appear to continue on the momentum. People have said that the flair is back. I, I think we saw that a little bit against England. We saw far less against um, uh, in their second game. Hoppersy, how do you call that game? Um... I, yeah, I just think that the, the Irish at home will be too strong for France. Um, I mean, I thought France played very, very well against England. They, they asked all sorts Agreed. of questions. Agreed. They really, you know, I thought they moved the English defence around like no one has done for a long while. And the cohesion seemed to be back. But as you said, against Scotland, I just thought it was it was a it was a real stop-start game. And, and at times, even when Fiku scored, you thought, oh, this is actually going to burst the light, and it just didn't. So um, I think, they've, as ever, they've got to have a, a very strong start. But I, but I do think Ireland, um, because not only because I've got tickets for the England-Ireland game over in, in Dublin, but uh, <laughs> but I think that will be the deciding game. And, and I think Ireland will just be too strong for France. I think Ireland will beat France comfortably. France's strength is founded on the front row. Ireland's front row is exceptional this season. Mm. Self-belief is so vital in rugby. French teams, international and club level, are getting used to going to Ireland and getting beaten and beaten quite badly. Irish teams, conversely, are used to playing French teams at home and beating them. Scotland, I think, Ireland got back into that game brilliantly and they'll be furious that they let it go. But we saw, albeit against a weak Italian team, that they are accurate, they are intelligent and they are a hard, fast team. I think this is a very good Irish team and I think they'll beat France well. I agree. And finally, um, we haven't really talked about England. That's that's kind of refreshing in a way. Um, does does anyone want to attempt a debate about uh, England not winning that one, or should we just go straight for <laughs> straight for Barnes? Is they have to win by sixty eight, otherwise it's a failure. 
I think the interesting thing will be selection and, and whether Eddie does use this as an opportunity to, to try players out either in different positions, bring former players back in, um, mix it up a wee bit and get the finishes on as starters, as a lot of people, including my two esteemed uh, panellists, have talked about over the last uh, few days. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see where he goes with selection and, and whether that has an impact. But in, in a way... You know, I do feel for for Connor and for for Mike Cat and Brenda Venter. I mean, it is an uphill struggle in terms of um, bringing Italian rugby forward. Um, I think they've got some outstanding players, but I'm not sure the structure really helps them at the moment. And there's a lot of work to be done. Talking to my oppo Matteo Barbini from the Italian Players Association, you know, there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes, just in terms of the professionalisation of rugby in Italy that are holding them back. So there's still some way to go. So, I mean, it will be a significant England victory. That's interesting. Does does he talk about the, the psychology of, of those Italian players? Because for me, it must be such a hard thing to get yourself up every six nations, every game, especially once you're into your your third cycle of, of the championship when you've been beaten heavily twice especially when you're playing for Zebra or Treviso when you're not winning many games in the Pro 12 either Well I, well, I think that, that it was the classic sort of uh, back-to-back weekend having beaten the Springboks they went and lost to Tonga the mm-hmm. week, week mm-hmm. after and, and, yeah, and I think that, again listening to Connor recently on he was just saying that you know the challenge is consistency and, and actually getting the guys to back up performances I, I would say um the South African win has not been franked. I, I, it doesn't prove that Italy were able one day to be good and then were poor the next. South Africa, we now know this is the worst South African team we have ever seen leave the shores of South Africa. My grandmother and her mates would have beaten the Springboks this time round, and the Tongan result is probably the reality about where Italy are. And to go back to Eddie Jones in England... Eddie Jones, the whole is always bigger than the individual parts. And that's why whatever he does with tinkering with the odd player here or there, what you've got to look at from England is not how X, Y or Z plays, it's how England play collectively. And that's why yesterday, Owen, I talked about how do you measure performance. Eddie Jones measures everything against the template that is New Zealand. Everything. How quickly you get off the floor, everything. He'll look at New Zealand winning 68-10 in Rome and saying that was in Rome, we should be able to beat them by more. And I, I think England will come alive this weekend, which is bad news for Italy. Recently, uh, Owen, there's been a growing debate because Georgia have been going well and then in the last couple of weeks, Germany and Spain have got significant, very significant victories. Russia also improving and I think uh, from the point of view of Italy, they have to give some sort of performance which will definitively make a, you know, stop this avalanche of publicity that there should be ups and downs in relegation promotion. I think Italy need to show that they, they deserve to be there. I agree with Damien, there's something in the background there, maybe the Federation that is completely wrong and you know, when you've got poor old Canner at 10 coming out still looking for his I think it's second victory of the season of any sort it's tough but that debate will grow and grow if Italy start losing games by 60 odd mm. uh, Enjoy the weekend gents uh, but final predictions I'm going uh, Wales Wales to win in Murrayfield uh, Ireland with some conviction at uh, in Dublin and then England by a very long stretch uh, in Twickenham uh, anyone uh, dare to disagree with, with, with my clairvoyance I, I've got Scotland to win narrowly against, against Wales I also think if you just allow me that um, 
I think rugby changed this past week and rugby's got kick in the backside. A bit more caring, bit less, a bit less old school will do wonders for us uh, to, to look after the players and, and our whole community. Agreed. Uh, I would like to finish this uh, edition of the podcast just by repeating the uh, that web address for the uh, Rugby Players Association campaign that we talked about before. Uh, if anyone does want to get in touch, it, it the the campaign is called Lift the Weight, and the web address is www.therpa.co.uk forward slash Lift the Weight. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>